Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, and guess what? It's the Centered from Reality podcast, and today it's Tuesday, December 27th, and we're almost into 2023, which honestly doesn't really make a lot of sense to me, but here we are. Here we are. We're moving. Another trip around the sun. Time is a circle, and I'm sitting here looking out the window, was watching it rain earlier. Now Apple Maps said it's breezy, which... I went on a walk a little bit ago, and it's definitely more than breezy. You can see the clouds moving, wind is pounding the place here, and the clouds look really cool. Quite cold, there were some flood warnings, all that jazz. So here we are in December, we need the rain. It never rains here in Reno, sitting here in Reno right now, and they're getting a lot of rain for a place that usually gets like half an inch a year or something. So good news, I guess. We need water. Also, it's not as cold as it's been in the East Coast. So, hey, glass half full today. Anyways, I saw Avatar, The Way of Water, last night. Broke down and finally saw it. For a while, I'd been kind of talking shit about it, basically saying, oh my god, it took 13 years to make this. Like, how full of himself is James Cameron, blah, blah, blah. And went with my mom last night to watch it. We did the 3D IMAX experience, you know. And I gotta say, I was... I was wrong. It was very good. I actually liked it more than the first one. It was a little more of an original plot. The first one felt like Pocahontas or Dances with Wolves or whatever else. Kind of that same tried and true story. But this one was good. Had a lot more themes that I connected with. Themes of identity, family, connection. What makes identity in a sense. And what makes memories. So I I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I I think it's worth seeing it in theaters. I don't know if I would sit through it at home because it's about three and a half hours. But yeah, can't complain too much. Of course, I've already seen criticism from people wanting to boycott Cameron, identity politics stuff, but I thought it was pretty good. I thought it was pretty milk toast in terms of political messaging, but you can't make people happy, so I'm sure there's going to be someone to complain about it. But anyways, our friend uh, Congressman Santos, you know, who is uh, going to be inaugurated into the House of Representatives for New York coming up in a few days. Well, he finally gave an interview after he pretty much lied about his education, work history, religious identity, sexual preferences, all that jazz. And he did an interview with the New York Post, and basically he said things to the effect of, I'm human, I'm flawed, all I did was kind of inflate my resume, expand on the truth a little bit on my resume. And I'm just going, dude, like... Apparently, he didn't work for Goldman Sachs, but he worked for another company that did business with Goldman Sachs. That's like me say that, saying that I'm a vendor for Coca-Cola, and I once brought Coca-Cola to the office of the executive for Disney, and then putting on my resume, executive of Disney or something. It's like, just because I was somewhat, you know, I was somewhat close to this other business does not mean I worked for them. And so... This guy didn't just inflate his resume. He blatantly lied. Anyone else would be fired about it. And I guess he's not stepping down. He's going to just keep going. He's going to run, or not run, he's going to just be put into office. And the thing is, apparently he never graduated college, though he said he did. He never worked for any of these businesses, blah, blah, blah. So it's like, he's a complete fraud. And also, he used a lot of words that don't exist during this interview with the New York Post, which makes me wonder if this guy is really suited to be in Congress. But then again, the Republican Party is full of nuts right now. So while this guy is not an election denier or a coup or an insurrectionist, he is 
a liar and apparently kind of a sociopath. So that's going to be fun to watch. And yeah, I mean, there's just lots of unique people out there right now. Moving on, I, I want to just touch on the Supreme Court for a few minutes. And then we are going to actually talk about quite a few things today, like why Southwest Airlines sucks and why they never learn and they just keep having issues. And like 87% of all the flights this week that were canceled were Southwest. Then I want to talk about some updates in the Kosovo, or the Kosovo, sorry, Serbia clashes that are escalating. And then I also, also if we have time, I also just want to touch on Taiwan and some updates there. But yeah, so the Supreme Court today said that the Trump-era border restriction known as Title 42 is going to remain in effect while legal challenges play out. There's a lot of legal challenges going on right now, but the Biden administration was going to expire it, remove it, and reverse Title 42, but now it is remaining into effect, and this is a move that ensures that federal officials are going to be able to swiftly expel migrants at U.S. borders at least for several more months. And remember, during COVID, this kind of made sense. You have a pandemic. You don't want people coming across borders illegally who could be carrying it. Of course, we all know that Trump and his administration, this was COVID was just an excuse. Like They were looking for ways to make immigration less and to keep people out of the country. COVID was a perfect example. And it's funny always to think about how the Trump administration used COVID for some things and then denied the severity of COVID for other things. But that is a whole other subject, which we're not going to get into today. But basically, in this case, it was 5-4. So you had five yeses and four noes. Of course, Justice John Roberts, who I usually agree with, he was in favor of keeping this. Clarence Thomas, no surprise. Samuel Alito, Brett Kavanaugh, Amy Comey Barrett. And those are the five. Now, the interesting one, and the reason why I'm, I'm bringing this up is that Neil Gorsuch, the conservative justice that Trump appointed, also dissented, and he explained his thinking in an order that was actually joined by the liberal new justice, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, and it's interesting, these two actually agreed on something, which actually, if you know much about Gorsuch, he's a very interesting cat, and Gorsuch said he does not, in quotes, discount the state's concerns about border security, but he also noted that Title 42 was put in place to combat COVID-19, and the current border crisis is not a COVID crisis. And I really like this reasoning. And I think I've said this on the podcast before. I've definitely said this to friends, is that I've actually always liked Justice Gorsuch, definitely the most out of the Trump judges, and he is actually one of my favorite justices. And I think it's because he's very consistent in small government principles, and he's not one of the ones who lets politics get in the way of his personal views and his jurisprudence in a lot of these issues. And he's just consistent, and he's more of a libertarian-minded, right-leaning person. And this decision really shows it because he really truly believes that you should not let a crisis or an emergency situation be used to take advantage of a court or a law. And I really like his reasoning in this case because he says here in quotes, courts should not be in the business of perpetuating administrative edicts designed for one emergency only because elected officials have failed to address a different emergency. And I think it's a great point is look, we can debate whether there's an emergency on the border, but let's just say that there is a serious emergency on the border just for discussion's sake. Well, that emergency is very different than a global pandemic, which is one emergency that's completely different. And I like his idea that you can't let an emergency crisis be abused and you, and you can't 
basically take advantage of it for your own reasons. And, you know, we saw that with 9-11. We, we've seen that with COVID in a lot of ways. And I think it's important that he is saying, even if you agree with what Title 42 is, the background of why it exists should not be used and abused. And I think we need more people in our Congress, in our courts, in our White House, etc., that have this type of reasoning. And that's why I've always agreed with libertarians on these type of issues, especially national emergencies, national crises, is because you need to make sure that the government has oversight. And now I would imagine when they start hearing these student loan forgiveness cases, right, because Biden basically's justification or, or his administration's justification was that 9-11 emergency de- decree I can imagine Gorsuch is also going to say, well, we can't, uh, he's he's, he's probably going to dissent on the student loan forgiveness case as well under the same rationale. So it's going to be interesting to see. But again, it's it's cool to see that Gorsuch is willing to break away on these issues because the rest of them, I think, are fine with this under the guise of immigration and border security when Gorsuch understands the underlying issue here. And we need more people like that. I'll say it again. And moving on, I want to talk about another little crisis, I guess we could call it, that's happening in the U.S. right now. Yesterday, I talked about the migrants getting dropped off at Vice President Kamala Harris's residence in D.C. in the frigid cold on Christmas Eve. Doesn't quite sound like a Christmas fairy tale, does it? But anyways, I'm not going to talk about that again, but it's becoming less of a good look for Greg Abbott because... While he's been involved in these cruel theatrical acts, it looks like Texas is having another energy grid crisis or a potential energy grid crisis, something that probably could have been at least dealt with, if not managed better. And look, I'm all about state rights. I do think state independence and having small government control of local issues is important. However, however... Electrical grids are kind of something that need to be shared. And I think network collaboration is key. There's a great book by Donald Kettle that I had to read in my master's program. And the book is The Next Government of the United States. And without going too into the weeds, basically he discusses how Hurricane Katrina was basically a failure because the government treats its services like a vending machine. They just put money into it and hope the system works. The book talks about how these different bureaus and agencies were all siloed off and couldn't communicate, and there was no network collaboration. He talks about how the president had limited authority, how FEMA was inept. He just goes into a lot of details about how Basically, a hierarchical closed system doesn't work in times of an emergency, especially when it's isolated and insular. And his recommendation is that government needs to be less of this structured, closed vending machine and more of a collaborative network where you put in people who are willing to be flexible. And instead of having a vertical hierarchy, you have a horizontal structure where people can kind of have independence, work outside of the framework that usually exists in government. And maybe you bring in nonprofit actors, you bring in state actors, you bring in the private sector, you bring in other localities to work together. And I I remember I I wrote a paper on this, and I was talking about how the Texas grid seems kind of like another failure similar to Katrina, where you have an insular organization like ERCOT, which is the Texas energy company that's always involved in these issues. It's kind of insular, outdated, and not willing to collaborate with other states. And... 
Anyways, the Texas Tribune says in quotes here, after underestimating power demand, the Texas electric grid operator ERCOT got federal permission to exceed air quality limits. And what basically happened there is there was high demand over the weekend for energy because, you know, storms are going through Christmas, whatever it was, there was a lot of demand for energy and they didn't have enough output. And so basically they were allowed to start producing more and more coal than legally they're usually allowed to. So they're all of a sudden now, because they, didn't, they don't have enough of other energy sources, they're now allowed to exceed air quality limits to basically meet uh, energy demand. And this is not good for the environment. It's not good for air quality. But it's what happens when you constantly don't fix a problem that people are telling you to fix. And Basically, ERCOT is not prepared once again, the state of Texas, not prepared once again, even though, you know, what is about two years ago, we had this same issue. And in quotes here, the U.S. Department of Energy granted permission for power plants to release more carbon than is normally allowed if the grid worsens. So it's just irritating. It's just kind of irritating because instead of picking on these migrants, the Texas government under the leadership of Greg Abbott should have been looking into this in more detail. And I don't think that's something crazy to say. And again, like Greg Abbott, people are sick of these type of issues, but no one's willing to vote him out. And I guess this is what you get is you get performative Fox News bullshit and people have energy issues during the winter because nothing gets solved. And I think that's the state of some of these Republican governors is they don't actually govern as well as people want them to. But because of our divided partisan nature of politics, they never get voted out. So moving on, I have been briefly, at least, talking about the storms of the century <laughs> that have been hitting the United States over the holidays. The death toll just keeps growing, especially in the Lake Erie area, which looks, well, eerie and cold and miserable. And again, there's, there needs to be a lot of investigations and conversations afterwards about what has happened here to make these death, death counts as high as they are. Uh, we're going to have to save that probably for another day. But I have mentioned multiple times that thousands and thousands of flights have now been canceled. Thousands every day, probably closer to five to 10,000, I would imagine, by the time the holidays are over. And I even have a friend that I have been following on Instagram that had to basically drive across the U.S. back to Los Angeles because their flight kept getting delayed, then it was canceled, and then they had to drive from somewhere in the Midwest all the way back to California. It looked exhausting. I'm, I'm assuming sleep was not a uh, high priority on it, and I'm really hoping that things get better before I fly later in the week because... Yeah, it's chaos. I mean, I see pictures of just suitcases, lines, chaos. I kind of like airports if it's on a good day. Like, I kind of enjoy sitting at an airport bar and talking to someone who you're never going to see again. Everyone's guard seems to be down. There's something kind of nice about airports, but that's when things are going well. And today I actually want to dive into this whole cancellation thing a bit more because I guess I read something quite fascinating. CNN Business has an interesting article from this morning, and it says in quotes here, close to 87% of Tuesday's U.S. flight cancellations are Southwest. That's according to a flight tracking website called Flight Aware. Excuse me. Southwest canceled more than 2,500 flights. The next highest, Spirit Airlines, canceled 83. Yes, I said that correctly. Southwest canceled 2,500 flights on Tuesday. 
the next highest was 83. Damn. <laughs> I mean, that's a significant difference. Um, I don't even have my calculator out, so I'm not going to try to even do that math, but that's an insane difference. But I would just add that this confirms how much I don't like Southwest. I mean, Southwest has had so many of these issues. No airlines are good, in my opinion, when it comes to these issues. They overbook flights. They oversell seats. The seats are getting smaller. The services are getting more meager. The prices are going up. I could, I could do a whole podcast on the airline industry, but I think Southwest is even worse because the flights are just as expensive as other airlines. Like when I fly to Chicago, United or American Airlines are practically the same price as a Southwest flight. Also, they do that cattle call, basically, where you don't get to pick a seat. You just have a boarding number. So you kind of have to rush to find an aisle seat if you're me, because I, I, I only like aisle seats. It's just chaos. Like, you, you're paying the same price. You don't even get a seat. It's a cattle call. All they have are, like, tiny little chips, and the drink selections are not great. Also, if you're going to Chicago, you, you land at Midway, which is an awful airport. If you fly American Airlines for practically the same price, at least you land in O'Hare. So Midway, bad airport, Southwest, bad airlines, but I'll, I'll, I'll stick on the more public policy side. So going back to the article, I'm kind of curious about why Southwest is so much worse, right? Or as CNN says, why is Southwest melting down? And apparently Southwest's CEO has said that this is actually the worst wave of cancellations he's seen in his career never a promising sign. And the company has basically said that there will probably be thousands of more cancellations in the coming days. It looks like about a third of their flights are going well. So they're really cutting down to about a third, which is just not good. I'm sure they're losing a shit ton of money. And apparently things have gotten so bad that the Biden administration is launching an investigation. I hope they actually do something instead of just investigate and then tell consumers how they can get refunds because obviously something's broken. And it looks like as of now, there's kind of two theories or at least accepted reasonings, I guess, on what's going wrong here. And the first one, let's start with that, is bad timing and bad luck. As I kind of ranted about a moment ago, Southwest has a very big hub at Midway. Midway, awful airport. Chicago has awful weather. Basically, when you have bad weather in a giant hub, a lot of flights had to be canceled from there. Also, Denver is another huge hub that got poorly hit. So you have two big hubs for Southwest, bad weather, cancellations occur. Now, I would also say, though, you don't see American Airlines with, with as many cancellations. They also have a lot of flights into O'Hare in Chicago, which is still in the same city. So I don't know if that totally answers it. But you could also say there's the bad timing of weather chaos with the triple pandemic, RSV, the flu, and COVID. Probably a lot of workers sick. Sometimes you have these curveballs thrown at you. It can kind of make sense. Now, while some of that makes sense, I think the second reason makes more sense. <laughs> I think the bigger issue is that the company is being poorly run, is greedy, and it's underinvested in services that are a must for this time of year. And when you underinvest and then you have some sort of just crunch, yeah, things are going to fall apart. And there's another article that says here in quotes, Southwest's schedule includes shorter flights with tighter turnaround times than other airlines. 
That's causing some of the problems. And that's according to Kathleen Bangs, who is a flight-aware spokesperson, I guess. Also, there are consistent reports that people stranded in these airports couldn't even contact Southwest's customer service. That CNN article I talked about earlier from CNN Business writes in quotes here, employees also said they have not been able to communicate with the airline. The president of the union that represents Southwest flight attendants told CNN Monday, it goes on to say later, the phone system the company uses is also not working. Lean Montgomery, president of TWU Local 556, told CNN they're not just manned with enough manpower in order to give the scheduling changes to flight attendants. And that's created a ripple effect that is creating chaos throughout the nation. Of course, if you can't communicate with customers, also you can't communicate with flight attendants or plan who's going where, that's going to be a problem. Also, like, what if your system doesn't work, then you can't change people's flights quick enough? You can't get people refunds? Like, it seems like there's just cascading effects in what's happening at Southwest. And the thing is, is that they just haven't invested in these services. And apparently the company also hasn't invested in scheduling software for flight attendants. And I don't know very much about this, but from my understanding, this is the software that says, oh, flight attendant A is going to plane C. And then they're going to land in airport D, and then they're going to be then transferred to this airplane or stay on this one. And it's just all a timing of trying to find how many flight attendants are going to be on what flight at a given time. And apparently the software for doing that is kind of crap for Southwest. And the extreme cold, ice, and snow basically did ground planes, right? And some crew members ended up stranding. So Southwest's crew schedulers had to work just crazily to put a new schedule together. And they were matching available crew with aircrafts that were ready to fly. And apparently the software just couldn't handle this. And you had flights ready, but there was no crew for them. And that's also another problem that... I mean, they've been predicting the storm for a while. I, I'm assuming a lot like other businesses in the United States, they were cutting costs and they knew maybe one day something bad would happen. But when the when, when, when things are good, sometimes you don't have to worry about those problems until it's too late. And it seems like that's definitely the issue here. And I guess a lot of people are going Southwest really needs to like own up to this, be investigated, do something, pay some fines. I'm fine with just accountability here because back in 2021 they canceled thousands of flights for similar issues said they were going to change the ceo spoke about trying to improve their systems and here we are in almost 2023 and nothing's changed and even though southwest is getting all the crap right now this is a general issue with airlines in the united states they're predatory it's high-speed robbery and i think more consumers, travelers need to have more rights, and we need to know our rights. And the Biden administration is all about equity and transparency, or at least they say they are. So they should really work on trying to fix this instead of just telling people, oh, you can get a refund. You ha you're, you're, you're afforded a refund. Instead, why don't we hold the airlines accountable and not put the responsibility onto the traveler? So yes, lots of good times flowing around the corner there. I, like I said, I I have low expectations for my flight later this week, but hopefully I'll make it because I would like to see the Packers play. But anyways, a few weeks ago, and I, I guess I'll start by saying I haven't heard really anyone talking about what's happening in Kosovo and Serbia because I think we're all so fixated on Ukraine and what's happening there. 
We're so fixated on economic issues, on Trump, on Republicans, on the border, whatever. But there's a lot of interesting stuff happening in Kosovo and in Serbia. Not good news. And uh, I, I want to do some more updates on that because a few weeks ago, I talked about some things going on in a region of Kosovo that is ethnically Serb. Kosovo used to be part of southern Serbia, right? After the war, violence, genocide against Albanian Muslims, a lot of things happened and Kosovo became an independent country, still not recognized by Serbia. And I talked about how tensions were escalating and an election had been suspended after a crackdown by police on the Kosovar side and protests and violence on both sides. Also, you had the replacement of Serbs in that region's government with Albanian Muslims. Difficult situation. But now, according to reports I have seen, Serbia's army is now at its highest level of combat readiness, which is not something you like to hear. The Economist writes here in quotes, On Monday, peacekeepers said they were investigating a shooting incident in northern Kosovo. This is just more escalation as the region has been on edge since November when representatives of Kosovo's Serb minority withdrew from the country's government institutions. And now this is a huge problem, which I'll get into, but pretty much the Serbs have withdrawn from working in the institutions in these regions in Kosovo. They've been replaced with Albanians and it's really just escalated ethnic tensions and the Serbian government is now being escalatory as well. And... I'll spare you guys all the details because I talked about this a few weeks ago, but things are looking bad. And in an escalation of, re of rhetoric here, Aleksandr Vucic, Serbia's president, said in quotes here, he would take all measures necessary to protect his people and preserve Serbia. And now again, he still views Kosovo as being part of Serbia. Most of the world doesn't. This guy seems dangerous to me because, because basically he's one of those former communists who ended up embracing more of the nationalist fascist rhetoric as well. And there's a good article moving on, though, that discusses how locals in the Serb-majority region of Kosovo, which I believe is in the Northwest, are basically just not happy about the standoff between these two sides. I think a lot of average people just want to get back to normal life, which is usually the case in these situations. And while this is the case... Politics and historical tensions are just hard things to avoid. You know, it's, it's really difficult for that to happen. And they're really coming to the surface here. There are reports, for example, in the north of, of Kosovo of divided cities, masked men running around, whispers about paramilitary groups, signs that read the Northern Brigade, which people speculate is some sort of paramilitary movement or separatist movement. There is a heavily divided city in the region called Mitrovica, and apparently people are on the edge there more than in other places. There's a stencil that reads on buildings, we are waiting. It has some allusions to this northern brigade, which could be just a faux paramilitary, but it also could be something more troubling, which I'll get into. But whatever it is, it's clear that things are changing quickly. And The Economist notes here in quotes, since the end of the Kosovo War in 1999, crises have come and gone in the country's north. Diplomats rush in and the barricades come down. But this one feels more dangerous than usual, end quotes. And as I mentioned earlier, in November, and I think this was a stupid move by the Kosovar government, and I'll explain why in a moment, but in November, Serbian representatives 
in Kosovo, which live in that region, withdrew from the government and were replaced with ethnic Albanians. Even police in the Serbian areas of Kosovo have been replaced by ethnic Albanians. And what happens where you live in a region that's Serb-majority, what happens when all of a sudden those people are gone and they're replaced with Albanians, who are Muslims usually and culturally different, historically different from you? This has made many Serbs mistrust these officials and feel that the Albanian, the ethnic Albanians are an occupying force. And so the optics of this are pretty bad because you want the involvement of the people who actually are represented there. And as I've said a while back, between this and the riots and the violence, along with that license plate fiasco, which I think could have been avoided, which happened back in June, things are going very poorly in my opinion. Now I should also note that I don't really think a direct military conflict or a war, if you want to use that word, word would happen. But this war of words between the two leaders, sorry, I bumped my mic. The, the war of words between the leaders of Kosovo and Serbia has gotten so bad. And there are ways that Serbia could intervene without really intervening. And what I mean is that while there's a little risk, while there is little risk, sorry, of the Serbian army openly rolling into Kosovo's north, the government could try to replicate what Putin has done. And this is the strategy of the little green men. Vlad Putin used this when he seized Crimea from Ukraine in 2014. Basically, they would start infiltrating the region using unmarked soldiers without officially acknowledging their allegiance. It sounds kind of sketchy, but it is what they did in 2014. And maybe all these talks about these paramilitary groups in the north, the Northern Brigade, I don't know. There's talks about shadowy people with masks and guns. Serbia's President Vucic has talked about this. He's also alluded to doing some form of peacekeeping, a mission that was allowed by the UN and NATO in the 90s, prior to Kosovo being a country. So I would not be surprised if something is in the works here. I should also add that Putin and Vucic are close. And I, I mean, one would have to assume that Vucic has been following what's happening in Ukraine and maybe taking notes. Also, the distraction of Ukraine is good for him. And at the same time, I think with the war in Ukraine going on, Russia's fine with this. I'm sure Putin wouldn't really mind some form of distraction in the Balkans either. So these two could kind of feed off of each other if you really think about it. And that's, that's per not particularly good, I guess you could say. Now, I should also note that it definitely does take two to tango here. In this case, it's very true, and one could argue that the Kosovar government has kind of inflamed this issue, or at least not been a good, good, genuine actor in this. Because of the division on both sides, and just the historical tensions, and the atrocities that Serbia has committed, I do think compromise could be tough, especially because Albin Kurti, who's Kosovo's prime minister, he is seen as being very stubborn and hard to work with. He also seems somewhat emboldened and, I don't want to say arrogant, but he's definitely cocky because of Kosovar independence. And it seems like he likes to kind of rub that in Serbia's faces, or the, at least the government's faces. And then on the other side, you have Alexander Vucic, as I've stressed a lot, big Putin ally, strong man, likes retconning history. By retconning, I mean doctoring what people think and like changing some of the stories to fit your agenda and apparently in September 
Serbia and Russia, Russia, Serbia and Russia signed an agreement to basically consult on foreign policy, which is interesting, kind of a sharing of foreign policy, right? When you see maybe Serbia thinking about doing something similar to what Putin has done. And also Serbia has not sanctioned Russia. And I, and Vucic is a Viktor Orban type, a Vladimir Putin type, right? And there is also clearly no love lost between the two because Vucic has called President or sorry Prime Minister Kurti a terrorist scum, and Kurti has scoffed at Serbia, saying in quotes, "There is no time machine for Serbia to reverse two decades of history." And I, I guess you can kind of understand that in the sense that they're pissed off as hell about you know the atrocities that Serbia has done. And going further, Prime Minister Kurti like most leaders we talk about on this podcast, has said he's willing to negotiate. However, that is just always easier said than done because from my understanding, these sides, much like what's happening in Ukraine when they talk about having negotiations, like both sides in this Serbia-Kosovo thing do not agree on even the terms to begin with. And so when you say you're willing to negotiate, you have to be careful because careful at being optimistic about that. And... I guess, I mean, if you were going to be optimistic, from my understanding, there are fairly simple ideas that diplomats, usually foreign diplomats and UN peacekeepers, are pushing for. And, for example, there are foreign diplomats, peacekeepers, that, for example, say Kosovo must implement an agreement that it already, by the way, signed in 2013, that basically grants autonomy to Serbian-majority regions in Kosovo. And this, I, I think, is something important because I think a lot of Serbian-majority regions, which are mainly Christian, Orthodox, this lets them control basic services like education and healthcare. And look, like Albanian Muslims, Christian Serbs, they have different value structures, views on life. And if you're going to live in a country with ethnic tensions that go back centuries— you need to give some sort of autonomy to them. Like in Spain, Spain has autonomous regions. Granted, they're all mainly Catholic there, but Spain has autonomous regions where, like, the Basques or the Catalonians or the Gallegos, for example, have some sort of independence to make decisions for themselves. And Kosovo needs to do this, not send in more Albanian Muslims to control areas that are not supportive of that and instead feel like they're being occupied. And this was kind of in place before the breakdowns occurred, and it should be put back. But again, Prime Minister Kurti seems somewhat stubborn here. And then again, on the other side, other ideas that diplomats are pushing for, Serbia needs to treat Kosovo like an independent country. It does not even need to formally accept this. It just can't try to seize anything. And I know that's crazy. It's a crazy thing to talk about, but it can't start seizing things or sending in little green men or whatever else there is. And the problem is, I don't see Serbia doing this. In my opinion, these are not hard agreements, in theory. The Economist, unfortunately, does note here in quotes, Relations are now so bad that the leaders of Serbia and Kosovo are living on two different planets. And I, I guess that just leads me to say that, like, however this ends, I don't know. But when you're living on two different planets, communication is usually hard, if not impossible. And I guess the hope here is that the UN can help broker talks, because at the end of the day, it doesn't sound like most people 
in either country really want these issues. The governments are the problem. Stubbornness is the problem. And I, I do think Vucic is a significant part of this problem as well. Staying on tensions between two countries, I want to talk about Taiwan. Because this kind of is a good segue because, you know, China doesn't think Taiwan's legitimate either. Putin doesn't think Ukraine's legitimate. Vucic doesn't think that Kosovo's legitimate. Anyways, this morning I was reading that Taiwan has extended its mandatory military service from four months to a year. And the timing is interesting here because China is being seen as more and more of a threat to the Taiwanese people. And from the research I have done, it looks like President Tsai Ing-wen, Taiwan's leader, does not think that Taiwan's current training situation, like military preparedness, is going well enough if there was going to be an attack or some military escalation with the mainland. Now, this new idea of mandatory military service going to a year will not actually go into effect until January of 2024, so it's not exactly happening quickly. But the thing here is that apparently yesterday, and I don't know if this is coincidence or just chance or maybe 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 planned, I don't know, probably coincidence, but apparently yesterday China staged a pretty significant military incursion, and this is according to Taiwanese reports. Rafi Berg for the BBC basically wrote in quotes here, China has staged one of its biggest, biggest incursions in the seas and skies around Taiwan. The government said in quotes, 71 Chinese Air Force planes arrived, including fighter jets and drones. They entered Taiwan's so-called air defense identification zone. The U.S. said China's military activity was destabilizing and it undermined regional peace and stability. And, um, yeah, I think that sums it up fairly well, right? And also to go into more t- details here, the BBC also notes in quotes, Taiwan's defense ministry said 43 of those 71 aircraft crossed over the so-called median line, an unofficial buffer separating the two sides inside the air defense zone. And, of course, this won't surprise you guys, China has said these exercises were a response to provocation from the United States and its allies and Taiwanese officials. This rhetoric is, you know, actually after what we talked about yesterday on the podcast, this rhetoric is kind of similar to what Putin always says about affairs in Ukraine when he argues that his actions are just benevolent responses to provocation from other countries. Like, it's kind of a good way to gaslight everyone around the world about this. And I feel like as these things become more frequent, to me it feels like the United States cannot have its cake and want to eat it too. What I mean here is that the U.S. still adheres, kind of, (laughs) to the one China policy and to strategic ambiguity policies. But then at the same time, you have officials expressing concerns about Chinese tensions and escalation in the area. And for example, you had a White House national security official who said the U.S. was concerned by the latest development, saying in quotes, it would continue to assist Taiwan in maintaining a sufficient self-defense capability in line with our long-standing commitments and consistent with our one China policy. Look, that is eating the cake and wanting it too. Being consistent with helping Taiwan and also being consistent with the one China policy. Like, it just, it it would be like in Ukraine if you were like, Ukraine is part of Russia, but also we're going to help Ukraine defend its integrity. It's like, okay, one side doesn't believe the integrity of Ukraine exists without Russia. 
I just don't know how that makes any sense. But I could be wrong. And before we move on, or I guess end the episode, I don't have too much more to say, but before we end here, I just really want to say that I think Taiwan will be the Ukraine of Asia. It just seems inevitable. It just seems inevitable that it will happen in the next decade or so. The writing's on the wall. Also, I still find it kind of mind-blowing that the U.S. doesn't have some sort of official treaty with Taiwan because of all the effort we put into helping Taiwan. From my understanding, and this is why I think we should have some sort of agreement with them, from my, from my general understanding, China's not as stupid as Putin. Xi Jinping is not as stupid as Putin. And China would only attack Taiwan if it thinks it could win or if it needs, basically if it needs to. The Economist has an article from back in November, and it notes and quotes here, In Beijing, war with Taiwan is seen as a bad outcome as long as other options remain on the table. And I think that's an important thing to note. The article continues, but many experts believe the mainland's options are, sh- are shrinking. An anti-secession law passed in 2005 compels China's rulers to get militarily involved if they believe peaceful unification is no longer possible. And, and I, I think that's interesting because like, I think China's kind of strayed away from involvement militarily with Taiwan because they've never really had to. And I think the United States should be a buffer. I really do. I think I think the United States should move away from this strategic ambiguity bullshit and make some sort of agreement with Taiwan. I think this could help with deterrence if China were to be hawkish. Also, one does have to wonder if this would deter China because an invasion of Taiwan would turn into some disastrous quagmire. So, I mean, you know, as we see escalation occurring, one has to wonder, like, what is the U.S. going to do? Because strategic ambiguity has worked, but it's clear that Xi has a different agenda, a different idea of what is next. And I'll leave you guys with that. I'll leave you guys with that. So Tuesday, thank you for listening. Again, go see Avatar. It's a good movie. I know my mom liked it. I know I liked it. It was entertaining, to say the least. Uh, Watching blue people swimming around in 3D, always fun. So anyways, hopefully we get some good news out of Kosovo and Serbia or out of Taiwan, or out of Texas. Like, not, not a lot of good news. And if you're flying Southwest, I would say cancel now because things are not looking good. And screw Southwest, by the way. Anyways, take care. Have a great rest of your day or evening. Adios. Hasta la vista, baby.